welcome again to Downtown Presbyterian Church. My name is Jake Patton. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, that was Adam Radcliffe, our pastoral intern, who is leading the liturgy for us this morning. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, it's a privilege to have you. We're continuing our study in the Old Testament this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let's open them together to Exodus chapter 20. Just looking at one verse, verse 12. And if you don't have a Bible, it's printed for you uh, in the bulletin. While we're getting buckled in, just a couple thoughts. Uh, we have this phrase in our household. It's called the middle child syndrome or the middle child phenomenon. And if you have three children or maybe you have five, the way this phenomenon kind of plays out is, is something along these lines. The middle child is often the one that, that gets overlooked. It's not done on purpose. It's always accidental, but sometimes that middle child just always seems to get overlooked somehow. It's, it's the middle child syndrome, as, as we call it. Well, if we were to apply that theory to the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment might be that middle child. It's the one that's so often overlooked, and it's often overlooked for this reason. We, we may not say this out loud, but what we kind of assume about this, this command is that it expires. Some of us think that when we graduate from high school and go to college, we don't have to fulfill the fifth commandment anymore. Some of us think that when we get married and when we start a family of our own, we, have to, we don't have to fulfill the fifth commandment anymore. And some of us think when our own biological parents die, then we are freed from exercising the fifth commandment. And that couldn't be more untrue. Um, this commitment, or this uh, commandment, just like any of the other ones, uh, are still binding. So I want to take a look at that this morning. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. And this is the word of the Lord. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this, uh, your word, and we ask that with it you would revive our souls, that you would make wise uh, the simple, and that you would open our eyes to behold the wondrous things of your law. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this may surprise most of you, but uh, I, always, I haven't always been a Presbyterian. What? Blasphemy. Um, that's not the case. When I was in high school, uh, right between my sophomore and junior year, we moved to a new city, and we started attending a Presbyterian church for the first time for all of us. And I had my elder interview, like most of y'all have had, if you're members here of the church, all of you should have had. And... Uh, he was asking me questions about my faith, asking me background questions, small talk. And I remember it was a weekday, and I was getting ready to go to work, so I had my uniform on. So I was a lifeguard, all right? So I had a T-shirt with my company logo on the front, and it was with ba- in a bathing suit and sandals. And so he said, you know, obviously you're a lifeguard. I said, yeah. And then without missing a step, he said, well, do you work on Sundays? And without thinking, I said, I sure do. And his response was immediate. He said, that should not be the case. I want you to stop working on Sundays. And not only that, I want you to approach your boss and I want you to ask him to have Sundays off to honor that, that Lord's Day. And I wish my response was more noble than it was. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something along the lines of, who are you, old man, to be meddling in my personal life and my wallet 
I mean, after all, I had an 87 Pathfinder, and I needed a new stereo in it. And if I'm not going to work on Sundays, like, you're killing me here. You're killing me. And I was struggling with all of those emotions, those same emotions that you struggle with when anyone with authority over us, anyone who is, who is over us, a shepherd, a leader, asks us to do something that we don't want to do. It doesn't feel right at the time, but after, after some time and some meditation, he was right in what he asked me to do. But we don't like that, do we? We like to be self-made men and women. We love our autonomy. We want to do things our own way, and we want to do things by ourselves, so that when we succeed or if we fail, it is all on us. It's on nobody else, right? This is how we show up. This is how we're born. We're sons of Adam, and we're daughters of Eve. This is all of our hearts. And really what I want to get to this morning is, is, is how do we get to the point to where Solomon, when he says in Proverbs ten seventeen, becomes our reality. Listen to what he says. He says, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. He, whoever heeds construction, is on the path to life. How do we get to that point to where we're not so threatened by authority, but we welcome it? We love it. We want older people. We want other elders, people speaking into our lives, showing us the path, the way to go. How do we get there? Uh, I want to look at three things with this commandment this morning. So if you're taking notes, here's my three points. I want to look at our parents, and I've got our parents in quotations. Who are our parents, okay? Second point is their honoring. And lastly, the promise. So our parents, their honoring, and the promise. Well, first, who is my father and who is my mother? It seems like a simple point, and it seems very obvious, right? Who are my father and my mother? Well, before we kind of jump into this point, um, something happens on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does something that most rabbis in their day would do. And here's what it sounds like. Here's what he does. He says, you have heard it said, and what Jesus and rabbis would do is quote an Old Testament law, okay? So in the case on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, which is a commandment. And he said, you shall not commit adultery, which is also a commandment. What rabbis would do is they would give you their yoke. They would give you their interpretation of the law. In other words, the Old Testament law would be, like one commentator says, like the basement. Here's where you start. Application only goes up from here. What does it mean not to murder? What does it mean not to commit adultery? What does it mean to honor your father and mother? And Jesus explains, if you have anger in your heart against someone, that's murder. That's the ceiling. If you lust after someone in your own heart, that's the same as adultery. That's the ceiling. But if you're like me, sometimes when we read these Old Testament laws, these commands, we just want to stay right at the basement. We don't want to deal with the second floor, the third floor, the ceiling. We want to stay in the basement. We'd like to say at the end of the day, okay, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't have an affair. And technically, my parents didn't ask me to do anything today, so I honored my father and mother. So I'm good as far as the law is concerned. We love staying in the basement. But what Jesus and the other New Testament writers do is they show us the ceiling, the full application of these laws. It involves the heart, not just the hands, the heart, our inward affections and our inward realities. And that's what gets us all in the soup. We're all adulterers. We're all murderers. We all dishonor our father and our mother. So when we look at this commandment, to honor your father and mother, we start at the basement, which is what? Which is to honor 
and to respect those biological parents to whom God has given you. And that means even though, um, according to scriptures, that the husband is the head of the house, mothers get respect just as much as fathers do. You're to honor them both. Now, someone already said in the first service, you weren't hard enough on the kids in in your first sermon, so you need to dial it up. So we're going to dial it up. Just kidding. But that's the basement. That's where it starts. But according to the New Testament, this command expands. And Paul and Jesus kind of give us the ceiling. How has this all panned out? And here's, let me cut to the chase. What Paul's going to say in Romans 13 is this, is that anyone that God has given you that is an authority over you has been placed there by God. They are technically your father and your mother. They are technically your authority, and they are worthy of your honor. Anyone, I mean, everyone that God has placed over you, whether they are Christians or non-Christians, they deserve your honor. According to Paul and according to Jesus, that is the ceiling. And where do we see that? Notice how it kind of progresses through the scriptures. Second Kings chapter 2, Elijah, the prophet that was carried to heaven on a chariot of fire, right? As he is leaving, Elisha cries to the heavens, my father, my father. And he's not talking about God. He's talking about Elijah. No biological connection between those two. But Elisha calls Elijah his father, an endearing term. It works the other way as well. When Paul writes to the church in Galatia, he calls them in chapter 4, my little children. Are they all his biological children? No, but spiritually and in the kingdom of God, they are. They're very dear to him. Jesus would even say in his public ministry, who are my brothers and who is my mother? Anyone who does the will of my Father who is in heaven is my brother, is my sister, and is my mother. What starts very small here in Exodus chapter 20 expands, and we start to get to see this ceiling, the full application of this law. Who are we to honor? Anyone and everyone God has placed in authority over us, according to Paul, according to Jesus, Romans 13. That's what he says. That's the ceiling. So it's not as easy as just our biological parents, right? It's everyone he's placed in authority of us. They're worthy of honor. Well, then that begs the question, what, what, what does Jesus mean by honor? What does it mean to honor someone? Well, usually when this, this command is quoted, it's usually quoted in the context of disobedience, right? Little Johnny or little Sally is, is out of line, They're doing something they ought not to be done. And what does the parent say? Uh, 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 uh. Remember the fifth commandment to what? Honor your father and mother, which is synonymous for what? Obey. Do what I say. And do what I tell you. Not the third time, not the fourth time, but do it now. Right? And so our, our honor and obedience, are they perfect synonyms? Is that what God is getting at in the fifth commandment? And what I want to suggest is that honoring is so much more than obedience. Um, If you're a definition person, here's the definition for for honoring. It's to prize and to respect highly. To prize and to respect highly. It also has a nuance of care and affection. Okay, so it's not only just to obey, but it's to lovingly obey. All right, it's not just external obedience, but it's obedience that that starts from the heart. It starts out of love. 
and care and affection. It doesn't just involve the hands, it involves the heart as well. It's got to be both. Um, Think about this. Think about the drill sergeant, right? Drill sergeants are to be obeyed. And if you're a soldier, you obey your drill sergeant. Does every soldier love his drill sergeant? Most don't, but they obey. See, you can externally obey, but still not have that, that, that affection and that love. That's, that's not what God is talking about here. That's not what it means to honor. Nor is God suggesting here that, that to honor is to perfectly obey. In other words, anytime an authority tells us to do something, they get a blank check. We just have to say yes. We're going to do everything and anything any of God's authorities say to us or for us or in us. It doesn't mean that either. For example, if our government or if our leader tells you that you must deny Christ and deny your religion, what do you do? We do what Romans 13 tells us. We give to God what is God, first and foremost, which is honor, worship, and glory. And then we give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And if those two are ever at opposition to one another, you go with God, right? We call that civil disobedience. You go with God. So honoring doesn't mean perfect obedience either. What does it mean? Again, honor is engaging the heart, not just the will, not just the behaviors, but our very insides. Uh, I'm thinking about you this morning, you who are the youth of our church. And if you were like me when I was a kid, it took about 17 or 18 reminders to actually get me to complete a task in my house growing up. And then after the 17th or 18th reminder to go fill in the blank to do this just chore for my parents, the only reason why I did it was just to get them off my back so I can go back to doing whatever it is I wanted to be doing in the first place. That is not honoring. That is delayed obedience at best. Honoring your father and mother looks something like this. It's because it's thinking about, you know, what what my parents have done for me. I didn't pay for these clothes. I didn't pay for my car. I'm not paying to put a roof over my head. My parents have done so much for me and probably more than I can even imagine. And because they've been so loving and so kind to me, I want to do something back. So before I even leave for school this morning, I'm going to get halfway through that list. And then when I get home without being reminded, I'm going to finish the other half of the list. Because I want them to be proud of me? Not really. No, just because I love them. That's what it means to honor Um, For those of us in this room who are middle-aged, we're still taking care of our children, but we're we're coming up on the time where where we need to think about what it's going to look like to take care of our parents. And the question is, to nursing home or not to nursing home? That word already makes half the room uncomfortable anyway. Not a lot of positive connotations come with that. And and let me just say this. This is not black and white. I'm not going to tell you what to do about nursing homes. That's that's not my point. But what I want to say is this, is that there is a way to pull the trigger on that nursing home question. There's a way to do that too early. That is a form of dishonoring your father and your mother. And you say, Pastor, well, how do I know if, if, if I'm dishonoring or honoring my parents? Well, if your quality of life is more important than the quality of life of your parents, you might be dishonoring your father and your mother. You might be. I didn't say you are. You might be. But think about the couples in the room as well. You've had a very difficult decision you've had to make. 
you're newly married and you've prayerfully considered options, you've sought counsel from your parents, from friends, but it's time to make a decision and you have made a decision. And you find out not too, too soon after you have publicly declared your decision that one set of your parents disagrees with your conclusion. And they're not quiet about it, they're public about it. Is God saying here, well then I guess we have to change our mind, we have to honor our father and mother and do what they say? No. To honor doesn't mean you give someone complete and perfect obedience. It means you honor them, you lovingly respect them. You say, you have been so kind to me and so kind to us as a couple and we have sought your counsel and you are wise and you are thoughtful and I want to thank you for that. But as a couple, here's what we've decided and here's where we're going. And we know that's not what you would have chosen if you were us, but we just want you to know we love you and we respect you and here's what we're going to do. That's honoring your parents. That's what it means to honor your father and your mother. Lastly, um, the promise. Uh, let's read this, this passage again and imagine, which is pretty easy to do, um, you could probably find a, a passage like this in the Psalms or the Proverbs. It's very proverbial, right? There's an activity or a behavior that you're supposed to do on the front end, and then there's a blessing attached to it at the end. It sounds like something David or something Solomon would say. Listen to it again. Honor your father and your mother. Why? That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That's what happens. That's the natural order of things. If, if you honor your father and mother, if you honor these authorities that God has placed over you, what is the natural thing that's going to happen if you do that? Life is going to go good, simply put. This is the way things are supposed to be. This is the natural order of things. We talked about this last week with, with rest, right? There's a natural order to work and to rest. You work six days, you take one off. If you mess with that natural order, what happens? Chaos. Six and one, that's the natural order of things, right? In Overbrook, trash day is Wednesday. That is the natural order of things. If I try to make trash day Tuesday or Thursday, my garbage game is off. It's not going to work. The same is true about authority. He's saying there is a natural order to authority. And this existed long before the fall, just like work. Authority is a good thing. God was sovereign in the garden over Adam and Eve, right? They were under his authority. Do not eat from the tree. Um, authority is a good thing. And when we listen to authority, when we heed, when we humble ourselves, when we seek counsel of others, what's the thing that happens? Life goes on and things go good. And we'll never know the bad things that could have happened had we not listened to our authorities, had we not listened to our parents. We'll never know what those bad things could have happened. We don't know what they are because they didn't happen because we listened. We humbled ourselves. That's the natural order. Side note, after about 700 years uh, after this, and that's, you know, give or take a, a century, we're not exactly sure, but about 700 years later, we come to the prophet Micah. And the prophet Micah was sent to the people of God because God was about to send his judgment upon his people in the form of foreign occupation, the Assyrians. The Assyrians were going to invade and they were going to conquer and take the people back into slavery, back into another kind 
of Egypt. But before this happens, he sends his prophet Micah to warn them. And he says, look, bad things are coming down the pipe. The Assyrians are coming. And Micah's prophecy comes with an indictment. And there's several sins that God accuses the people of God of. You know what one of them is? One of them is breaking the fifth commandment. Listen again to Micah 7, verse 6. This is God speaking through Micah to the people of God. Here's what he says. Here's his indictment. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. What happens when you disturb, you unsettle this natural order of authority and submission and heeding counsel and advice? Nothing good. This is the way God has created us. This is normal. It's not to know it all as kids. We need, we need parents and we need authorities to instill that in us. That's God's natural order. Uh, I want to close with, with two things and this morning, again, we ask this question after every command, but how does this command point us back uh, to Jesus? Again, in Jesus' own words, he did not come to abolish the law, but fulfill us. And as George reminded us this morning, right, if every road in England goes back to London, how does this passage point us back to Jesus? And then the second question is this, why does it matter? Why do we as Christians, and especially over this, this past series, why do we care so much about Jesus' performance with the law? I thought we were supposed to care about our performance to the law. Why are we so interested in what, how Jesus is doing with the law? I want to answer those two things. But first, this. How does this point us to Jesus? Um, John's gospel, um, in chapter 19, verse 30, we hear these these words uh, at the end of Jesus' crucifixion, these, these, are, these are words of good news to us. We love these words. Jesus says, it is finished. And that's the last thing he says before he dies and before he expires. So the question is, is what exactly is finished? Well, it's this. It's that sinners, since Adam and Eve, have been accruing this debit of sin. And somebody had to pay for that sin past sins, present sins, and future sins down the road. And what Jesus does on the cross is he says, all the penalty, all the wrath that is due sinners, pour that on me. This pain was not just physical, but it was spiritual and emotional. He was coming to be the Lamb of God, right? And offer himself as atonement for God's people. And so when he said, it is finished, his work of atonement was done. It was accomplished through his death you know what happens in John's gospel just four verses before this? So imagine the context. He is moments, not minutes, moments away from dying. Dehydrated. He's losing blood and water out of his side. Moments away from expiring. You know what he does just four verses before this? He honors the fifth commandment. He honors the fifth commandment. You remember that? Let me read it for you. This is John 19, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loves standing nearby, he said to his mother, he said to her, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, whom we know to be John, he said, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What was on Jesus' mind moments before he expired, before he died? He wanted to honor his heavenly father by honoring his earthly mother. Sons, are you listening? (laughs) His concern was for his mother, that she be taken care of. That she be, be given resources and help and aid. And he looked at John and said, John, behold your mother. Please take care of her. That was Christ's heart for his mom and for his heavenly father. But again, why does this matter? Why is it so important for us to consider again Christ and his perfect works of righteousness? Again, what we say is that for 33 years of life, Jesus never broke the law in spirit or in heart or in letter. He perfectly fulfilled the law. Who cares? Why is that important? It's for this reason. Um, Recently, I learned how to change the brakes on one of our cars at home. Apparently, you can learn anything on YouTube these days, and I did. So I watched this video on how to change the brake pads on your car, and it took me almost three-quarters of a day to do it, but got it done. And, you know, I kind of assumed that, you know, when I put the car back down on the ground that I was kind of done, mission accomplished, hey, brakes have been changed. But the job is not done until when? until you actually get that car out on the road and you test them and you make sure those brakes work. Let me tell you, that was a nerve-wracking few minutes for me. I'd never done this before going, okay, this is life or death here. This could be life or death, the quality of my brake job, right? I don't want to put my family in harm's way. I don't want to put myself in harm's way, but the only way I'm going to know is if I try and get out there. And that was a scary couple minutes. The same is true as we come before our our, our Father and our Creator, which we will all do at some point. That's a very, very scary thing to do. Why? Because He is holy and He is perfect and we are not. But Christians don't need to fear a holy God, right, who demands moral perfection. And why is that? It's because Jesus, this man who for 33 years kept the spirit and the heart of the law perfectly, says, guess what? The good news gets even better. Not only am I going to atone for your sins, not only am I going to take all your bad stuff upon me, but all the things that are good in me, my perfect record, I'm gifting to you. So that when you stand before the Father in prayer or in judgment, you don't have to wonder, is this, is this a quality righteousness? Does, does Jesus do, just do half of it and I've got to do the other half? Like, like how good is this? Because this is life or death. This is life or death. And what John tells us is is in his very last moments, up until the point to where he expires and dies, Christ's righteousness was perfect. He was fulfilling the law. And so why do we look at it? Why do we care so much about what Jesus does? Is because that's what we wear now as believers. That's why we can now go before a holy God and pray and ask for things to interrupt to make requests, 
And why we don't have to fear is because his righteousness is perfect. It's quality. And you can bet your life on it. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, you truly have been a great father to us. You've opened your hand to us and given us all that we've needed. And we see that most clearly in the giving of your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, we praise you for being our lamb. And we thank you for giving us and gifting us your righteousness. Help us not to take that for granted. Help us to love you through obedience. Make a, help make us humble as we stand before authorities and others who would give us counsel. Make us wise according to the heavenly courts. And we ask this again in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.